Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hey, this is Jessica Severin Martinez, one of the best public radio producers who has ever existed. Sorry, yeah. Kayon rewrote this little show preview for me to read because she can't talk right now. Really, she's taken a vow of silence. It's an experiment she's doing that she'll turn into a segment for next week's show featuring other people who've done the same, including a professor who didn't speak for 17 years. So be sure to tune in next week. For today's rebroadcast, we handpicked this episode where the only thing all four guests have in common is that their name is Pat Smith. You'll meet an African-American kindergarten teacher in Japan, an adventurous videographer from Georgia, an environmental activist from the UK, and the Pat Smith who taught Kayon in elementary school in Unionville, Connecticut. This was right out of the blue. <laughs> All because too. my name is Smith. That's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kayon Wolf, and I'm pretty sure I'm the only person in the world with that name. And I like that. There's a certain amount of um, accountability that goes along with being the only one in the world with that name, you know? And I am a very special snowflake with a very special name. Special, special, special. But every now and then I wonder, what would it be like if it were flipped? If I had a very, very common name, how would I be different from who I am now? And how would I be different from all the other people who share this name, this label? Now, I don't, as far as I know, have any direct access to alternate timelines where that's the case, but it got me thinking about making a show where the only thing my guests have in common is their name. The most common last name in the United States is Smith. And if that's yours, you have around 4.5 million other people in the world that you share it with. So that was a given for the name we choose for this show, but what about the first name? Well, since we wanted to make sure that any gender was represented, we went with Pat. So welcome to the Pat Smith Show. Today you'll learn that even though they have a common name, there is nothing generic about Pat Smiths. And you're going to meet four of them. You'll meet a videographer in Georgia, an environmental activist in England, and my elementary school teacher, who's been a mentor of mine since I was in the third grade. But let's start far, far away from the United States to a place where there are very few Smiths at all. Not only is Patrick Smith one of the few people named Patrick Smith in Tokyo, Japan, he's one of the few black people in the country. And I'm willing to bet he's one of even fewer African-Americans named Pat Smith in Japan who teaches kindergartners. He's been doing that for the past seven years. As his 1.5 million followers on TikTok know, He's been sharing some of his experiences of what it's like being a black man in that country. I asked him what it was that made this Flint, Michigan native fall in love with Japan. Japanese people are very, very kind. They, they think about other people first. Um, it's very much like a, a community-focused um, culture. Like they, don't, they never put their needs before you know, someone else. 
Yeah, I heard you say that they don't even necessarily introduce themselves in conversation. Like you don't say what your name is at the beginning until exactly. They're they're very like private in that way, but it's also I think kind of like a respect sort of thing. Like they don't want to burden you with like retaining this knowledge of of you know the other person. They want you to whenever you feel comfortable to introduce yourself, then they'll introduce themselves to you. And there there is like a a bit of a um, it's called oh, what's it called um. I forgot the word, like your true self that Japanese people kind of suppress when they're in public versus their real self. Jessica, did you just find it? Tatame? Yes, yes, yes. That's it. Tatamai. Tatamai. <laughs> yeah. And so that will, you know, that that's kind of the reason for a lot of it. Why so many people in Japan are, you know, just so polite in public. And it's not always a direct reflection of how they actually feel. But I do think that generally, like even personally, people will actually still want to put the other person before them in a much bigger way than like people in the States would. People in the States, it's just a very different story. <laughs> I'd love to hear about your experience. Uh, you teach kindergartners and teaching kindergartners, I've never done it, but I've hung out with one or two myself in my time and kindergartners are amazing and funny and violent and rude and, and, and I'd love to hear in general what it's been like teaching kindergartners in Japan. It's one of the best things, honestly. I have loved it completely. I, I love teaching the little kids. They're so much fun, like you said, and they, they just say what comes to their minds and they, they have just such pure hearts. Even the naughty ones, like they're, they're just, they, they really are sweet and rude and hilarious and full of energy. And you just never really know what, you know, a particular day is going to look like with a class of kindergartners. But I love every second of it. It's so much fun. And they're so wholesome and sweet and coming always from such a good place, which is what makes talking with them about race so interesting and different than talking with any other age group or, or person than a kindergartner. So I know I'd love to hear a few stories about interactions you've had with kids who've responded to your skin color, your hair. Uh, what kind of experiences have you had and opportunities, I should say, to talk with these kids about race? Yeah. Kids would every now and then comment on the fact that my skin is brown. And <laughs> one time I got licked by a kid. Um, like <laughs> I was holding his hand and we were in line waiting to go somewhere. And uh, he was like examining my hand. And I was like, I have a feeling he's going to lick my hand. And sure enough, like I looked away a, for just a couple seconds and Within that that few seconds, I felt like a, a lick on my hand. And I was like, Josh, don't lick my hand. I'm not chocolate. <laughs> and he just kind of like sheepishly grinned. But uh, yeah, I, I've gotten licks. I've gotten comments and just like kind of touches. Whenever I hold hands with a kid, when they let go, they'll like look at their hand to like see if, you know, the brown has rubbed off onto their hand. I remember there was a, a boy in one of my kindergarten classes who was kind of not okay with me being brown. He said something along the lines of, oh, Mr. Patrick is dirty. And I was like, okay, this is a really good opportunity to talk about this with the entire class. So I like didn't really focus on him specifically. I, I addressed the whole class and was like, 
you know, I'm brown because my family is brown. My mother's brown. My father's brown. My whole family is brown. And we're not dirty. We just, you know, my skin is brown. Your skin is, you know, a, a lighter color than mine. And that's okay. My skin is brown and that's okay. That was it. I, I dressed it really quickly and we moved on. And then uh, maybe like a week later, it came up again. We had been reading a story at that time about these, this hen who like makes a pizza or something. And there's a different colored hen. Also, there's like a white hen and then there's a red hen. And I pointed out the two different colors. And that's why that whole conversation started. I was like, me and you all are different colors. And the boy was like, oh, you're dirty. And so when I read that story again the next week, I was like, oh, remember the, the hens are different colors and that's okay. Just like it's okay for me to be brown and for you to not be brown. It's okay. Everyone is different colors. And the boy was like, no, not okay. And I was like, oh, remember we talked about this before. And so I, instead of focusing on the class, I directly like addressed him. I was like, okay, Bruce, remember, um, we talked about this before. It's okay for me to be brown. And when you say it's, it's not okay for me to be brown, I, I clarified with him. I was like, do you mean it's, it's not good that I'm brown? Like my skin being brown is not good. And he's like, yes. <laughs> and I was like, that, that makes me really sad when you say that because my family is brown. There are many, many brown people. If you say that to brown people, we will feel very sad. Um, so please don't say that again, okay? And then about a week or two later, we read the story again. And I was like, okay, everyone remember? <laughs> the hands are different colors. That's okay. You and I are different colors. That's okay too, right? And the whole class was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay, Mr. Patrick. Like, we know it's okay. It's okay. Including the boy who, who had made those initial comments. And uh, it was just really, really encouraging to see that they, like, well, he specifically at least progressed to uh, from a place of, like, not being okay with it to being okay with it. And I, at that point, took out my phone and showed pictures of, like, black children with them. And they were, like, really, really shocked to see kids who, you know, looked like them in the sense of being children, but who also didn't look like them because they're black. It was cool to see them, like, just have that realization that, oh, these people are real, like Mr. Patrick's always saying, like, many people are brown. That was probably one of my proudest moments from my, my first year teaching here in Tokyo. You said when he says that, you know, it makes you feel sad. And yeah, like, of, of course. And it makes me wonder how... When you're in the United States, you have to deal with being a black man in the United States. You're othered, you're feared, you're looked down upon by some people. And you're in Japan, and you have to deal with it there even more. What is it, 98.5% uh, Japanese? So it yeah. makes you a minority in a, in a really specific way. So these two places that you've spent a lot of your life in, you are othered. And in this one, you're othered by little kids as well as <laughs> while out and about. And I'd like to hear more about that in a little bit. But like, how does it affect you? I think when I was living in, in the U.S., I always felt like I never fit in anywhere, obviously because I'm a minority in the States, but also even amongst other black people, I would stand out because of the way that I, I talk and the way that I you know, carry myself. Um, I grew up in a very small, predominantly white school. I, and I was there from kindergarten all the way up until 
you know, graduating high school. And so all of my close friends were white students, or at least a vast majority of them. And, you know, as a result, whenever I would be amongst black peers, if I didn't say anything, they wouldn't really, you know, look at me funny. But the second I would speak, they'd always be like, where'd you go to school? And I'd tell them, they'd be like, oh, okay, you're in Davis. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so I, I've just never really felt like I belonged or fit in anywhere. I've always felt kind of othered. And so I was kind of prepared for it, I think, because of my experiences in the States. And when I moved to Japan, it was, you know, the same. It's just like, well, I'm used to people looking at me funny. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's just kind of par for the course, I guess. But it does kind of suck. Like, it's never, like, fun to feel like you don't belong somewhere. And I know the majority of the people here would not say, oh, you, you don't belong here. Go back to your country. There are certainly people who feel that way. But most Japanese people are really, really kind and are happy that foreign people live here. But it, it does great on you having people stare at you constantly. And, you know, when I am walking around at my school, if I'm going into a new classroom of kids who haven't seen me before or who have seen me, but like haven't seen me up close and like haven't like interacted with me, it's just like they don't know what just walked into the classroom because <laughs> I'm brown. Like every, all of me is brown. And I get that like little three, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, that must be kind of like scary to them. And I, I understand that. So it doesn't, I never feel upset at the kids for the things they say, but it, it does kind of like uh, make you feel a little bit sad. Like I, I would like to be able to just blend in and be like a normal person in their eyes. I would love to be able to go out and go shopping and, and not have people like stare at me because I look, because I'm, I'm foreign. I would love to, just be a, a person, just a person in a place. But that's never going to be the case as long as I'm living here. And when it, if I, I do plan to move back to the US and when I do, it's I'm sure it won't be that way there either. I'll, I'll probably always be othered. And so it's just something I've had to come to terms with. And it is, it is a bit sad, but I can handle it, I think, because I've just had the experience for so long. Well, domo arigato. Patrick Smith, thank you so much for talking with me. <laughs> you can follow Patrick on TikTok and Instagram at The Paper Pat. When we get back. We cannot keep on using up the Earth's resources as if they're entirely inexhaustible. First baby I touched was uh, my first son. I just avoided babies. They seem you know, very odd to me. Meet Pat Smith, the environmental activist, and Pat Smith, the videographer and grandpa. Plus, hear the voice of one of the most influential educators in my life, Mrs. Pat Smith. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is The Pat Smith Show on Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. All of the guests on today's show have one thing in common. They are all named Pat Smith. Later, you'll meet my favorite teacher of all time. Sorry, all my other wonderful teachers. 
and a videographer from Georgia who talks about the joy and sorrow of being a husband, father, and grandfather. Now, as someone with an uncommon name, I don't know what it's like when you have one that's more widely embodied, but I can imagine that when you introduce yourself as Pat Smith, you sometimes get people saying stuff like, oh, is that your real name? Or with a name like that, you can get away with anything. But Pat Smith of Cornwall, England, doesn't want to get away with anything, especially when it comes to the choices we make with how we consume and how we throw stuff away. She's the founder of Final Straw Cornwall, which seeks to empower people to stop reckless consumerism, which is damaging our planet and our future. It was easy to research her through her website, but I wanted to get to know her a little better personally. So I asked her how she would describe herself. I'm very goal-driven. Um, I very often uh, set myself challenges and things, and um, it's because my mind drives my body and I always if I say I'm going to do a thing I always follow through unless it kills me in the process well then you wouldn't know because you'd be dead is exactly is that just the way you've always been wired or was there like somebody in your life who instilled some sort of um I come from very humble beginnings you know my parents we weren't anywhere near well off we didn't have a tv for ages when everyone else did we didn't have a car for ages when everyone else did and I think part of my upbringing was sort of like it actually sowed the seeds of me determined to work really hard and so being goal driven has always been to sort of rise up really to give myself more choices in the world rather than what Hmm. the world dished out to me there's there's a whole spectrum of ways that people react to the chaos that's swirling around them in this world. And, uh, you know, part of it is your upbringing, and I'm sure part of it is your wiring. So if you were to be face-to-face with someone who was the opposite of you, who was just kind of like a victim, who was lazy, who totally who was totally unmotivated, what kind of things would you say to try to, like, shake them out of it? You have to look within. I actually think most people are looking at these days, I see more and more of this, they're always looking for someone else to blame. You know, the only person that's going to get me anywhere is me. And I think it, it's just the thing where you dig deep from with internally rather than looking always to sit there and say it's someone else's fault. How old are you, if you don't mind my asking? I'm 73. <sighs> What kind of things are you worried about in this era of your life? I worry about what my grandchildren and my children, what their choices are going to be environmentally for the future, which is what drives me so hard to work on realising how my generation has consumed most of the plastic that's sitting in on the ocean floor now. Unwittingly, unwittingly, because until... 2017 I had no idea that plastic was polluting the ocean till I saw the film A Plastic Ocean and once I'd seen that film there was no turning back for me no turning back and that's how my final straw campaign was born and um, it's been very successful and um, I'm not taking the credit for this but a lot of of the traction we gained by creating a campaign against 
the simplest thing that people could give up without even realising they were not using them anymore was plastic straws. And um, 18 months ago, the government of the UK banned plastic straws. And so, um, you know, we now do not have plastic straws available. You have to be paper or you drink without a straw. We were designed to drink without a straw. We don't have to have pretty flowers and umbrellas and God knows what floating around in the top of our drinks just to make them look pretty. Yeah, I saw some stats on your on your website. Uh, 8.5 billion plastic straws are thrown away in the UK each year. It takes 200 years for plastic straws to decompose. 100,000 marine animals are killed by plastic each year. What do you say to people who are like, plastic straws, that's just a drop in the bucket. Why bother giving them up? Yeah, why bother giving them up? Like, you're not going to wake up tomorrow and say, oh, golly gosh, I didn't have a plastic straw yesterday. No, you're not, because they are so incidental to your lifestyle. You don't need them. You don't want them. You just use them, throw them away, and it is a typical reflection of our whole consumptive society today. We cannot keep on using up the Earth's resources as if they're entirely inexhaustible. They are exhaustible. We are exhausting them. Do you care about your children's future or your grandchildren's future? Yes, I do. So for me, that caring is taken to what can I do about it? Some people go, well, I'll be dead. I will be dead. That's for sure. Before any of this really bites. So I could say, oh, it ain't going to bother me, mate. Fine, carry on, just do what you do. But I care about my family and I care about the future generations of what we are doing to make the earth such a barren desert. You know, how many species of animal have become extinct in my lifetime? You know, what are we doing to the Amazon forest? You know, for goodness sake, guys, wake up. This is the lungs of the world. You know, we are we our climate is changing. We've got problems that we haven't even scratched the surface of. Wake up, people, because this is coming. Does the way the world is going put your own mortality in perspective? If I got run over by a bus tomorrow, I do not want to lie there in the road thinking of all the things I could have or should have done. I want to go there lying in the road knowing I was going to die and feel proud that every opportunity I got to try and be a good soul, help other people, do the right thing, teach my children well, be good in my community. I haven't a single regret. I don't want to have a regret. And that has formulated more and more in me for the last 10 years. It's just trying not to be acquisitive, trying not to overconsume, trying to be sensible about, you know, how I travel, where I go, what I wear, you know, always asking my question, is it, do I just want this or do I really need it? And I think there's some of those filters we need to start applying to everybody in their everyday lives. But because we can, in the West, have almost what we want, whenever we want it, but whether we should is very different. I'll drink to that, but not with a straw. <laughs> well said. Thank you. <laughs> 
Well, Pat Smith, I'm, I'm so grateful that you talked with me. Thank you. Thank you for opening up. It's been very, very nice to talk to you, and I've enjoyed it immensely. When it all comes down to the final straw. When it all comes down to the final straw. You can see her work at finalstrawcornwall.co.uk. When we were figuring out how to find guests for this show of Pat Smith's, my producer Jessica decided to start messaging all the Pat Smith's she could find on Facebook. She messaged over 35 people, and by the time we put the show together, we heard back from precisely one. Pat Smith of Athens, Georgia, did his research on us before saying yes. I had to check you guys out to see if you were scamming me. So it was on Facebook, and I was like, huh. <laughs> A story about Pat Smith. Yeah, okay. And since all I had was his Facebook page to get some ideas as to what we'd talk about, I figured I'd start off with a softball. What in his life is he most proud of? You know, it sounds really sappy, but my kids, you know, you know, they're taking care of themselves. They're, they're much kinder than I am to other people, you know, and, uh, you know, they're just doing good. Did you always know you wanted kids? No. First baby I touched ever in my lifetime was uh, my first son. I, uh, I just avoided babies. They seem you know, very odd to me. So, uh, but my wife, she's, uh, she's everybody's surrogate mom. And so we always had a house full of kids. So, so when you found out that you were going to be a dad, what did that feel like? It's like, okay. <laughs> you know, seemed normal. Just what you do, right? Yeah, yeah. I was 27, so it was okay. How did you meet your wife, Kathy? So we live in a college, live outside of college town. I'm 12 miles out. And my first wife and I divorced, and, and uh, nobody would ever – I live in the woods – you know, so I figured I could go to the bars in Athens and uh, find somebody, and I did. Now, you said you'd, you'd gotten divorced. How long were you married before you got divorced? We're together 13 years. We're married 10. I'm going through a divorce currently. Um, I hate that. Sucks so bad. What... Do you wish you knew back then that you know now about divorce? It gets so much better. I know lots of people that it was the best thing that happened to them. I was 20 when I met my 25-year-old wife. You know, so evidently I had a tendency toward getting married. I, I do know a friend of mine quit dating people that had never been married before when they were 50. She said, like, something's wrong with those guys. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, it's funny to be in the middle of it and thinking, you know, will I ever get married again? Because to me, marriage is sacred, you know, like, and to know that oh, it's, it's, such a, it's the worst thing that happened to me. And, you know, I've lost a child and it was the divorce was like more wrenching than, emo I mean, all of it was bad, but, you know. What happened with the child? Yeah, Josh. He he's uh he was a 
early, uh, he's a trendsetter. He was opioid death. So, you know, early on. I'm so sorry. He was a builder. And that was just rampant in the building. You know, people that swung a hammer for a living and they were giving it out like candy. So. When was it? 2010. My two TV shows canceled and Josh died. And then Kathy had a heart attack. It was like worst year of my life. Now that people know so much more about opioids and like the, the, the story, you know, you get hurt on the job, you get a prescription, you get it refilled, you get it refilled, you don't get it refilled anymore. You find other ways to get something like it. Did you feel alone in that sense or what, because it was rampant, did you feel like just another parent? It hadn't really started up yet, but you know, when you have a kid that's running in those circles, you have other kids that you've been seeing since they were babies. Did you get a phone call? Yeah, from my ex-wife, and I couldn't understand her. He um, he went to one of these, like, methadone for money clinics that was just another pill mill. And uh, they um, required you to take methadone in front of a nurse, except on weekends where they didn't want to pay extra for a nurse. And so on on holiday weekends, they'd give you four days worth of methadone. So he went home, took it all. And uh, I don't think he did it on purpose. And also with Josh, you know, I was expecting a call sometime because some of the other kids he knew had started kind of dropping out. How did it feel getting that call? <sighs> I grew up with a lot of death. You know, my dad was in the infantry and uh, people's brothers and dads were, you know, we had moments of silence, you know, two or three times a week. And I don't want to be callous, but I kind of thought he might be at peace a little more. You know, we're a little spiritual. When I mean, I taught Sunday school for 13 years, but I didn't do it because I'm particularly re religious. I did it because Kathy said it'd be good for the kids. So, so we did that because they didn't have school, you know, they, they wanted to go hang out with kids. So. so it felt like maybe there was some relief. Some relief for Josh, you know, there's pain for everybody left behind, but he was such a happy guy and he was so miserable. And I don't know if I even believe afterlife or anything, but I do feel like there's like a life force and you know his was evan and and um you know he had he had so many talents and they were just getting eaten up and he said uh yeah i probably shouldn't talk much longer than this, about this just for me but uh his his little brother sam who's 10 years younger than than josh and has all of his building skills and stuff he said, Josh told me like two weeks ago that he knows like everything's all up, but uh, if he can be anything, he can uh, be a bad example for me <laughs> you know? so that I know what not to do. And Sam is like taken to that. And his sister, I mean, she'll smoke pot and stuff, but I mean, they're just like, nope. And they're not, they're not aggressive. They're just like, nope, nope. Don't want to talk about it. You don't know what you're doing. You know, and then they get away from those folks. 
which is kind of what you know I taught them to do. So, thank you for telling me about that. I'm so sorry. You know, it's you know, you lose your mom, you lose your dad, you lose somebody. You know, so it's part of being alive. Well, the other end of it is uh, we notice that you have a new grandbaby. We do. What's the best part about being a grandparent so far? You're just there to love them and and uh, enjoy them and and uh, spoil them a little bit and treating them like they're a person. You know, if you're going to talk to them, be sitting on the floor and they just they're telepathic. They're uh, like they know stuff, you know, that we don't know. And they're here in this. It's funny. There's the saying, may you live in interesting times, but all times are interesting. And these times are particularly interesting. So you've got these little kids that are just getting started in this world that you know full well in in your experience. And it is pretty chaotic and wonderful and scary and beautiful and terrifying and unfair. Right. And, and, and how, how do you think we can leave this world better for those kids? What are you thinking? I don't think we can. I think they're going to have to do it. You know, I was in high school uh, and I was draft age and that was some scary too. I mean, that just, you know, we just didn't know. You know, we grew up hiding under our desks in school, which, I mean, we did drills, but yeah. nobody hit But them. to go through all that is, does something to you. Yeah, you're a little kid and you just, it's just like, yeah, everybody's going to die. All right. And we had to work it out. Are you hopeful? Yeah. I don't know how it's going to be. Wish our country would stay together, but I think my guys are going to be okay. And I know that's really kind of arrogant and they might not be, you know, but I just hope, I just hope the community as a whole could heal but maybe i don't know i feel a similar sense of i don't i don't know yeah you can't think about it too hard we grew up very much like tomorrow's another day you know started assuming the best and then when it goes to deal with it that was pat smith of athens georgia after the break I knew I wanted to be a teacher, but I never wanted a child in my room to be afraid. Meet the most important Pat Smith in my life, my third grade teacher. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today you've met three Pat Smiths from around the world who showed us their very different experiences on the planet Earth. And if you hadn't noticed, we're slowly moving closer to home. We started with the furthest Pat Smith we could find out in Japan. We stopped in England and Georgia. And now, Connecticut. Even though there are likely thousands, if not tens of thousands of Pat Smiths in the world, there is one who I've known since third grade— to be truly one of a kind. Kind being the operative word here. Mrs. Smith. Pat, 
Smith, as she insists I call her now that I'm an adult, was my third and fifth grade teacher at Union School in Unionville, Connecticut. Kind, because that's what she demonstrated as a teacher and as a human being. I remember her curly, dark hair framing her cheerful, smiling Irish eyes. And I remember one day when a new kid was coming to our school from Ireland, Mrs. Smith planned it so she and I would wear our real Irish wool sweaters so that when he arrived, he knew he was welcome. And when my writing career was just beginning to bloom, she was the first one to tell me that my writing was engaging and effective and and she was the first teacher to really recognize my big feelings. She said when I wanted to feel them, I could write them down on a piece of paper. And if I wanted to, I could ball it up and throw it away. I could do something with my big, big feelings. And to this day, I still do that exercise. She would laugh at my George Bush and Ronald Reagan impressions. And she even laughed at my impression of her, which was, well, uh, an impression of someone being kind. When we knew this show would be about Pat Smith's, I couldn't wait to ask her for an interview. I mean, we'd been orbiting around each other throughout these decades, but rarely saw each other in person. Even though she was nervous, she accepted my interview request. And when we met in front of the Farmington Library, my heart leapt when it saw her. Her hair is white now, but she has those same smiling Irish eyes. And I tried, I really tried to remember not to call her Mrs. Smith. Mrs. Smith! Hello. I know I should call you Pat! Yes, please. Oh, oh I was wondering how our meeting was going to be. Oh, I love you. I love you too. Uh, okay, so you know, do you know where we're going? Well, we could go in the garden. Yes. If it's too sunny, we could go inside. Let's go to the garden. Okay, good. Have you been over there in the garden they have over here? No. Oh, it's just, and then it's full of butterflies and bees. and See, look at this. Such happy little flowers. Yeah. Could I sit in the shade just so I don't... Absolutely. You, we so can you don't melt. <laughs> no sunburn. <laughs> I know we are delicate Irish lasses. I know. Oh, it's, it's, so it's so good to see you. Thank you, you so much for being brave. Am I brave? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, what am I going to do to you? <laughs> well, you know... Maggie, my sister Maggie, she said, courage is fear that said its prayers. So I said my prayers. So <laughs> I should be all right. Do you say and prayers every day? Yeah. Like when you wake up or is there a certain... Um, I wake up and I make my coffee and I say my rosary. And, um, you know, like standing out there just now, it's like, oh, blessed mother, help me do this. <laughs> it's like my husband says... You can't ask God. God's too busy for little things. I said, you can ask him for anything. So, Did you always believe in God? Like, did, were you raised with that belief? Irish Catholic, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very traditional. Is there ever a time where you questioned it? Um, doubt has entered in, but I um, don't want to go that route. And so whether it was a temptation or... Whatever, I think it's normal to have a moment or here and there, but I just, God is too important to me and my prayers, and He gives me strength and courage. The things that I've done along the way, it's been my faith that has allowed me to um, try new things and be interviewed. <laughs> and, um, and I just find strength in my faith and love, a lot of love, too. When you feel alone, and you just know God loves you perfectly, perfect love. 
And I love Blessed Mother and Baby Jesus and all the holidays and, and everything. Since we're talking about this, when I think about God and I think about religion and faith, I immediately think about death. I've always been interested in death and fascinated with it and the mystery of it and the beauty of it that it could be. Do, and I know when we were talking about getting together, you said that you're about to have open heart surgery and that's scary for anybody. I guess what's scarier is not getting it, but it's still scary getting it. And I wonder when you think about death, if you do and when you do, well, yes, the, the news of open heart surgery was shocking and scary. And um, I went to talk to my pastor in confession. He, I love going to him to confession. He always makes me feel good, and I leave like almost euphoric. Because it's usually God loves you, he's all forgiving, you know, and uh, don't worry about that. That's not a sin. You know, he just, he's, I'm, my dad used to say to my mom, you don't have to be holier than the Pope. <laughs> My mom was very strict. But um, so I went to talk to him and I told my pastor and Monsignor Mata and that I had to have open heart surgery. And, and um, I said, I just want to know that I'm all set, that if I do die, you know. But he said, think of it this way. They're going to put you into a deep, beautiful sleep. And when you wake up, you're either going to be here or in heaven. And I thought, okay. I do have some unfinished business, but um, heaven's good. Heaven's really good. And the promise is, you know, that we can't even imagine what God has in store. And he's all loving. He's just, I think that that's the thing. When I was growing up, it was kind of fire and brimstone, you know, sins and hell and purgatory. But I think I've learned it's all love. He just totally loves each of us. And with a perfect love. Do you think it's like, you experience that love now, like across from me, I know that you're feeling this love. I know it's part of practically your, your makeup of your whole body and your heart and soul and, and the things that you've done in your life. And so do you think when you go to heaven that it's like you'll be closer to that love or you'll be maybe inside it as opposed to a receptor of it? What, when you think about that love that's there, how is it different than the love that you have here as a human being on the planet Earth in 2021? Of course, I don't really know because I haven't <laughs> been there. <laughs> but the my, my idea of it is, is that um, there's no more worries. There's no more pain. There's no more fear. It's all um, in the presence of God. And when you're in the presence of God, you're in the presence of perfect love. And I, I don't, I didn't talk to them, my daughters or my grandchildren. I don't say death. I don't say dying. I say uh, when we go to heaven, or Grandma went to heaven. You know, my grandpa, my parents, and um, that is beautiful. So I choose to think that, and I like that. I like my face, and we ha all have a choice. We can choose, and in in choosing my faith, I also have to choose a sense of right and wrong? Do I choose moving away from Jesus and God, what he's taught, or do I move towards him? And, um, and I'm far from perfect, and I'm, I've made some very unloving things, decisions in my life, and choices, and feelings, and, and all this. That's why I do like, confession is like counseling. There's no judgment, there's no, it's just wonderful, and Monsignor is wonderful. And, um, do you think some of the values that you've had over your life 
in terms of what you think is right and what you think is wrong have changed? Oh, yes. Yes, I think so. I think um, God loves all of us. And we're, our job is not to judge anybody and do unto others. You know, I mean, all the secular lessons of, you know, being kind to your neighbor and, and all this kind of thing are just so beautiful. And we're not supposed to judge, you know, and say, um, he's too tall, she's too fat, you know, all this stuff. Or, or sexual preferences, which is a big deal to some people. Do what you want. I mean, I don't, it's not my business. It's funny you say that it's not your business because I've been reading this woman, uh, Byron Katie. And oh, she's I don't know her. fascinating. One of the things she talks about that you remind me of is when you're thinking about someone else's business, you often feel lonely, abandoned, because you've left yourself to be in their business. I you've left yourself that. alone. That's true. And so that's been a good thing I've been keeping in mind that when I really am compelled to be in someone else's business, besides, of course, having interviews like this <laughs> <laughs> for a greater purpose. But when I feel compelled to be judging someone and thinking, well, you shouldn't have done that. You should have done that. I think, I, well, now I feel instantly lonely because I've abandoned myself. So let me get back into my own business. Right. There's an expression, don't should on yourself. Or don't <laughs> should on others. And there's things like, Okay, my daughter Kelly is married and has two beautiful children, grandchildren of mine, and I have a lot of ideas about <laughs> how to raise them. <laughs> you don't say. But, uh, but you know, the thing is, is it's really none of my business. They're the parents. They get, I get to love the kids, and I get to, when they're in my house, grandma's rules. But other than that, I try to MYOB, you know, and um, I do once in a while add my two cents, but um, I try not to. You are human. <laughs> <laughs> I know. At this point in our interview, some very excited little kids came to play in the garden, so Mrs. Pat and I found a quiet room inside the library to continue our conversation. You are the teacher that I remember best, that I feel so much for. I mean, there's no other teacher that even comes close. What do you think it was about you? that made you the outstanding one in my head. And I know like, I guess that's my business, <laughs> but what makes you different than any other teacher out there? I don't really know, but I'll offer my background. Um, growing up, my dad was a labor relations consultant and arbitrator, and um, we moved about every two or three years. So I think I figured out, I lived in 12 or 13 houses and I went to 10 or 12 schools I did learn that people are nice wherever you go, you know, and you can fit in. And I knew I wanted to be a teacher, but I never wanted a child in my room to be afraid. I never wanted them to be afraid to come to school, sad about school. School should be fun. You know, you have to work. That's the other part of, so you want to have fun, welcoming, but you have to sit down and do your work, too. There is structure. You probably remember me as being structured, and there's a time where you can play, and there's That's a time. That's not good for kids, right? It's very good. Structure is very good. Actually, it makes children feel secure, that they know what to expect most of the time. So I think some of those early years, uh, all those experiences, helped me be the kind of teacher I wanted to be. So I didn't want children scared in my room. You did a great job. Thank you so much. I can't believe I'm having this. <laughs> I've been retired for 15 years. This was right out of the blue. <laughs> all because too. my name is Smith. <laughs> Pat Smith. <laughs> Pat Smith. <laughs> 
So for those who want to become teachers now, what do you desperately hope they keep in mind? The child. I think the child, the, the needs of the child is so important. Children are children. They're still happy, energetic, spontaneous, playful. Um, some of them are very sensitive. Um, they're probably scared. They're, so the most important thing is make them feel safe in the classroom, make them feel welcome in the classroom. You know, you will have challenging children, children with um, academic challenges, social, emotional, behavioral challenges, and you're going to reach back into that, those lessons you learn and books you've read. And you have to be a lifelong learner. You can't think you graduated from college and you've got it because children change, you know, based on the environment that, look what our children have been through with the pandemic and the war, and they see it all. So you have to, the teacher has to be sensitive to that. And the teacher has to be, um, so lifelong learner and share all that with the children. Children have to see and know if you're going to have silent reading time, then the teacher should be reading too. If you're going to have a writing workshop, share what you're writing, what you're working on. Well, Pat Smith, Mrs. <laughs> Smith, ah, thank you for thank talking you. with me. Thank you. Well, you, you made my day. I, I had such a good time. And when I rejoice, I'm smiling, sure they steal your heart away. Thanks to all of our brave Pat Smiths for their trust and their stories. And by the way, if anyone knows another Kion Wolf, can you connect us? Because that'll be the follow-up episode. Audacious is produced by me, Jessica Severin D. Martinez, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Subscribe to Audacious and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. You can hear them all at ctpublic.org audacious or wherever you get your podcasts. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf, And my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. Thank you so much for listening.